0: Welcome to part two of the Here, There, and Everywhere roundtable discussion about George Harrison and his post-Beatles Life and Music, featuring Rob Sheffield and Elliot Roberts. If you haven't heard part one yet, I highly recommend listening to that first and then coming hereafter. Part two picks up with us having just discussed our favorite George Harrison albums his most underrated songs, and George's opinion of contemporary music throughout his solo years. Hope you enjoy this episode. So while we're on the subject of Paul's affinity for always wanting to participate in contemporary music trends, this might be a good time to bring up the recent big news that came out the other week, that a new Beatles track the final Beatles song will be released this year that is according to Paul McCartney himself and right now headlines are describing the song like like it's going to be another example of of Paul embracing this AI trend in music where you know we can make songs we can make new songs sound like they're being sung by artists who are no longer with us I think that the use of artificial intelligence in this new Beatles song is going to be more along the lines of how they used AI in Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, where they're able to remove all excess noises from the track and make the original take sound fresh and clean. But I'd love to get your thoughts on this new song that's going to be coming out this year.
1: Yeah, I think... It's when when we read AI, it's merely the machine learning uh, technology that was used in Get Back to you know separate a guitar, uh, vocals, drums from a very muddy, otherwise muddy mix. Something that they didn't have the ability to do on the anthology when they made Free as a Bird and Real Love. They listen to Now and Then, which is the song that we all believe it is, unless he's going to pull a fast one on us and release Carnival of Light. But I believe it's it's Now and Then. Um, And uh, George, uh, Paul Paul actually said um, in, uh, I think, a BBC interview later on that uh, they listened to it and George was saying, oh, it's fucking rubbish, this, yeah, just not into it. And Paul was like, no, George, this is John. But because, because the Beatles are a democracy... They didn't want to do it, but the reasons why it was "quote unquote" fucking rubbish from George um, may be because of the the, the quality of the r- recording. Those those um, you know home demos of John's didn't sound that that great, but now with technology, perhaps you know perhaps they can be dusted off and uh, put to good use. I mean, I I know there's also another clip from George where he says, "I hope someone you know takes my old crap demos." and turns them into hit records. He said that around the time of anthology. So I think that is license for this song to come out. I know it's a bit contentious amongst fans that, you know, they're not getting the say of all all four of them or even three of them, but um, I'm very excited for it to come out. And I think, you know, this isn't, they're not going to create, I don't think they're going to create new vocals of John's using AI. I think that would be, um, Quite morbid, but I really don't think that that's what's going on here at all. I think they're just cleaning up an older demo.
2: Yeah, I think the headlines have been so um, trying to frighten people, you know, and Mm. also the familiar headlines trying to demonize Paul by saying, look what he's doing now. He's using Hell 9000 to create a fake (laughs) Beatles song. <laughs> um, I, so I'm determined to make up my mind about this when I actually hear the results, because, you know, I've been listening to bad Beatles imitations as long as there have been bad Beatles imitations and, you know, whatever the technology used to make bad Beatles imitations, nobody's ever had any trouble hearing the difference between the Beatles and the real thing. I, I don't think anybody has to worry that somebody will use AI, you know, which is very vague and, and confusing and elusive term, especially in a context like this, since this is technology that like you said, is you know, machine learning has been around for a while, but the whole idea that, you know, I don't think we need to worry about somebody fabricating Beatles songs that we won't be able to tell from the real thing, because uh, it's pretty well documented that many brilliant minds have spent their entire careers trying to duplicate the magic of the Beatles artificially. And, uh, It cannot be done. Honestly, if the Bee Gees couldn't do it with the Sgt. Pepper movie, it'll never be done. I always, I always smile when I think of what Robin Gibbs said, you know, that when our Sgt. Pepper comes out, it will be as if theirs never existed. I mean, he actually said this and he believed it, you know, and the thing is like for people to have that same fear now that, oh, there's going to be an artificial version of the Beatles that's going to replace the real thing. There's no reason at all to be worried about that, but it, I guess you can't tell people not to use these scare headlines when they are so effective at punching people's buttons.
0: Totally. I agree. I think if this, if this is now and then, and all they're doing is cleaning up the original track, then I'm, I'm actually really excited for this to come out. And Elliot, I think you're right. I think George might've liked the song, but I mean, we know that the issue he commented on was its sound. I mean, who who really knows why he didn't want to keep working on it? Maybe maybe he was just tired of having to see Paul in the studio at that point. Possibly. <laughs> I don't know what could give you that idea. <laughs> <laughs> also, you, I, I love that one moment in in the anthology sessions where George and Ringo are already in the studio, and then Paul walks in wearing a leather jacket, spots the camera immediately with his huge persona filling up the room. And then George deflates the whole persona in like two seconds. And he's you. like, is that a vegetarian leather jacket? Oh, uh, a vegetarian leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. yes. And then Paul's just kind of speechless and laughs. And he's like, yeah. And um, yeah, suddenly they're back on equal ground and love that.
2: That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, speaking of Paul and George working together post Beatles, how do you think George's relationships with himself, with each of the Beatles and with the idea of the Beatles changed since their breakup, like 1970, all things must pass.
1: I'm interested to hear your take on this first, Rob. It
0: was
2: very difficult for George to keep making music with that level of enthusiasm. And one of the weird things is, you know, when you look at the period of living in the material world and all things must pass and the concert for Bangladesh, when he was arguably the most popular Beatle, he was the one seen as sort of transcending the bickering and fighting of at, at the end of the game. He was the one who was moving on, who was proving his musicianship. He was, He was really on top of the world in the 70s, and it's really bizarre how quickly he fell off between Material World and Dark Horse, albums that people often link together if they're just looking at George's catalog from a distance, when they sound like they were recorded by two completely different musicians with completely different goals and completely different audiences. It's honestly strange that those albums are so linked together when they were just a year apart, but they're, they're a universe apart. And living the material world, he's got that enthusiasm for music. And obviously a lot of the joy has gone out of his life and out of his music by the time he's doing Dark Horse. Um, he's doing it for the money, and there's no pretense that he's not doing it for the money. He's doing this album while he has a case of laryngitis, which is an uh, innovation that I don't think anybody else has ever imitated. Uh, with all the many things that people imitate about George Harrison, nobody does that. Why don't we make an album while we have literally laryngitis and it's just because he had to do the album on schedule if he was going to use it to promote his tour. And just the, the the cynicism of it also connected with the drugs and what was going on in his personal life. Um, just the fun went out of it very quickly for him. And George, more than any of the other Beatles, uh, found it very difficult to fake it. It's something very fascinating about George is the quality of his vocals is always commensurate with the quality of the song because he was not facile enough as an actor to fake it. He he couldn't do, with all the other Beatles, we have great examples of them doing great vocal performances on terrible songs. Let's face it, they all did that. And George, you just don't have that because it's almost like his throat is almost like a conscience. You know, his, his throat is like, you want me to sing something like Simply Shady? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get laryngitis rather than go into a studio and sing that song. And I think with George, just so much of the fun went out of it that he had to sort of step back and let the enthusiasm for music, which anybody can hear renewed in the late '80s, he had to wait for that enthusiasm to come back because he couldn't just hack his way through it. As it turned out, when he tried to be a hack, he just wasn't a very good hack. George, for better for worse, he just he never learned how to fake it.
1: Yeah, I'd like to know. Do you where does um? Where does Dark Horse sit for you in terms of, uh, you know, a loose album ranking? Are you a fan of it?
2: Uh, No. In fact, I think it's even worse than Somewhere in England. Uh, (laughs) Oh, there you go. Yeah. uh, the, The difference is that, you know, given the place of Somewhere in England with having a hit attached to it, it's an album that I've spent many, 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 many hours listening to and not enjoying Whereas Dark Horse is an album that, you know, you listen to it once and you know exactly what's going on. It's not going to grow on you. <laughs> this is a rock star who has a big financial incentive to deliver an album on time. And the fact that he can't sing that physically he cannot sing these songs. It's that doesn't enter into his schedule at all. He's going to do the album even when he knows that it isn't coming out good. And even when he knows that it's not worth, it's its not up to the standards he usually sets for his art and you can hear like a lot of that on the record it's it's very sour and that sourness really stayed with uh with his music for a very long time definitely like peaking in the early 80s i think
1: oh yeah yeah i mean there's there's moments on on dark horse that i have come to really love i i think the opener is great harry's on tour especially the you know when when they recreate it live i think it really pops off um i think i think there's the kind of vulnerability and intimacy of uh, a song like Simply Shady um, and So Sad, even though they are depressing songs, I think there is there is there is something there. I mean, someone who, it, it does always strike me as so strange, someone who wanted to be so private and was, you know, very, he kept his cards close to his chest in terms of his private life, but here he was just spilling his guts out. Um, you know, he always likened it to Peyton Place or other, you know, soap operas at the time. Um, and I think there's, I think there's something to that, that I, I find quite special about Dark Horse that it's unlike any of his other albums. Um, and, you know, there were, there are a few songs on there that he recorded before, his his bout of laryngitis, like I think, Far East Man. I think it was starting to happen then. But even then, I think that's that's uh, shows his potential for soul music. Um, uh, that that I quite enjoy. I enjoy it more than Ronnie Wood's version, uh, as they wrote that together. And Dark Horse, the song itself, I think is good, despite it sounding the worst on the album. Um and ding dong ding dong is always a New Year's Eve favorite you know, if someone puts that on mm-hmm. you know uh, they're a friend in my book because it is' <laughs> so obscure but um i will I'll always feel like listening to it um come december thirty first um yeah i i i think I think that sourness did stay with George for a lot of his career, and I think that when you know, someone would bring up a Beatles reunion or whatever the heck Paul McCartney was doing at the time, it never helped because really Paul and George only diverted further as their careers went on. Their interests and what being a musician meant to them kept becoming very, very disparate uh, things. You know, Paul always wanted to create, you know, a hit album. He always wanted... To stay relevant with his music, and I think that there was, you know, a part a part of that that George resented. You know, he even said um, uh, when the backlash came out about his Dark Horse tour, he said, "Well, look, if you want to, um, or it might have even been later." Uh, he said, "No, it was then." If that, you want to hear, it a- was
2: early it in was that then, tour.
1: Yeah, he he said, "If you want to, if you want to hear a Beatles song, go hear, go and listen to Wings." Um, and it's like, oh, you know, like he, he was throwing shade. Very, very very early on in a way that um, the kind of playfulness of John and Paul, you know, when they were butting heads earlier in the 70s, there was something quite like, oh, these two misunderstood songwriting partners. But with George, it really just felt like pure resentment of whatever the heck Paul was doing or, or, or attempting to do. I think as the years went on, um, you know, they, they kind of got over that a bit and they had moments where they were together I wish I wish there was footage from Eric Clapton's wedding of uh, George Paul and and Ringo playing like that's kind of the 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 Beatles the long lost Beatles gig that we'll, we'll never know about you know even though they played like two or three songs or whatever it's it's still notable it's still very significant um I yeah I I, I would always like to think that the bluster of that relationship of George and Paul kind of the two polar opposites of the post Beatles world was mostly bluster. I, I hope that the dinners that they had in their later years and their ability to kind of reflect on it um, with, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just hope it was that they, they were able to mend things up and and find common ground um, more than we would perhaps like to think.
2: It's true. And that that is, uh, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, you look at 1973, especially, what an incredibly fascinating Beatles year that is. Um, John, George, and Ringo are together socially an awful lot of the time in in LA. There's the great, great moment. This is, I wish we had footage of this even more than Eric Clapton's wedding with them playing with with Eric Mm -hmm. Clapton. But 1973, they go to a party at Barbara Streisand's place in uh, Beverly Hills. And it's, uh, it's a political benefit. Uh, Hugh Hefner is there. Uh, lots of movie stars are there. Lots of uh, directors are there in the room. And people are calling and making pledges. And somebody pledges a certain amount of money. It turns out to be $3,000. And this is before that was a joke on Saturday Night Live. So maybe Lauren Michaels was there at this party too. But uh, if, if the three Beatles who are there will sing with a little help from my friends. And Barbara Streisand says like, oh, no, no, they're tired. They're rusty. So she sings it, which is very gallant of her being a very good hostess. But then she and George stay up all night until dawn talking about songs for her next album that she wants him to write. And they're eating the hors d'oeuvres in the kitchen. That to me, that is footage I would love to watch. I would love that as a sequel to two of us, just George and Barbara (laughs) Streisand sitting in the kitchen of her mansion. I love that because it's a moment where it's really kind of a a last moment for George in the seventies where he really sees a huge high profile pop career as something that he actually wants. And that is Mm -hmm. something that he embraces uh, rather than flees from. And it's it's just fascinating in in the way that, that with all, all three of the Beatles who weren't Paul, how confused they were in 1973 and for many years afterwards, by the fact that the world still loves the Beatles so much and Whereas it seemed Paul was a little more unsurprised by that. Paul was like, of course, people still love the Beatles. Whereas the other three, especially when you get, you know, 1973, you get the Red and Blue albums coming out. The, you know, the 1962-66 and the 1967-1970 compilations, um, which are blockbuster sales phenomenons. And like all the Beatles are really surprised and weirded out by the fact that they're so popular, that these are songs that are so old. and. For George, it's both inspiring and threatening, and it, there's something kind of beautiful about the sort of inspiration that that had for him.
0: Yeah, I, I think that I think that the awareness of the Beatles' music still being big and popular is definitely there on "Living in the Material World" from 1973. I think it's it's the title track. George directly mentions John, Paul, and Ringo. And he kind of breaks that fourth wall between him and the yeah. audience. And I assume that mention meant that he was on good terms with them or at least not bad terms. I don't know. Some I, Sometimes
1: I listen to that song and I do think that, but other times I think what he's communicating with that song is that we're stuck here in the material world. You know, he, I think that's one of the last lyrics he, he sings in that song where he, that this is not really where we want to be we you know there is something better that's not the material world it's the spiritual world it's the astral world and that's what george is especially with that album attempting to reach and he it's the last real effort where he wants his listeners he believes perhaps he can convince his listeners and his fans that this is actually you know the way to go john and paul here in the material world That's, that's not it. You know, like, I think it's playful and I don't think it's, it's, uh, I think it is a bit vague which way it goes, you know, like even with the, uh, uh, we got Richie on the tour. It's very funny. It's very cute. But I also think that he's, he's, he's pointing out something that the, the troubles and the things we go through in the material world aren't where it's at. Um, That's my take on it. I, I don't know. That's, I, I I think we, there could be a hundred different versions of what that, the inclusion of, um, the other Beatles names means in that song.
2: Sure. It's very fascinating. It's, it's, it, like you said, it's, it's a very vague moment. He's almost ambivalent about it. You know, he doesn't go Mm. all the way and make it, I mean, to me, it's, it's a really kind of sweet shout out. He's obviously in a very dark and confused place when he does that song. Um, Funny because he doesn't have anything really to say in that song about the spiritual world. He just can't stop talking about how much he resents being in the material world, (laughs) you know, frustrated in the material world, you know, like, I can't say what I'm doing here. But, and he's really upset about the fact that he's trapped in the material world. And it's really kind of funny that in the middle of this, like, really, like, lost and very dour and very kind of vague sort of song, he finds one human connection that brings some sort of meaning to his journey in life, to to his being a human being, being in the material world. And that's his connection to John and Paul and Richie. And it's a really sweet Mm -hmm. moment that you could definitely tell he's not really sure how he feels about it. And that, I guess, to me is what makes it so beautiful that he's sort of offering, he's thinking out loud to the listener and saying, look, I don't know what this means. Is this something I should be glad about or not? It's funny because he knows that the listener might have maybe dozed off in the first half of that song is going to suddenly wake up and go, wait, he's singing about John and Paul. And, and there, he just called Ringo Ritchie. This is at a time when nobody knows that Ringo is called Ritchie. Like none of, hmm. none of the millions of people who bought that album were, were familiar with the idea that Ritchie was Ringo's name and Ritchie is right there in the room playing drums on the song. It's a very sweet moment and a moment where you have a sense of, you know, he's like the only people who I feel any common connection to right now are the, the three Beatles who I have this gigantic, messy, chaotic relationship with that I've already been complaining about earlier on the album. And there's something (laughs) really beautiful about that. It's like the beautiful moment every night on his 1974 tour, what he would do in my life. And Mm. you could hear in every single performance of that, that he is really deeply conflicted about having been a Beatle. And he's like, I know that people are going to like this if I sing in my life this is going to be their favorite moment of the show. And I don't know what I feel about that. He's obviously like yeah. very ambivalent, but it's always got a sweet moment at the end where he says, and it always sounds very sincere when he says, I want to dedicate that to John and Paul and Ringo and, and the exes. So he says just the exes. Uh, sometimes he singles out John for writing the song, but it's always really beautiful that he's got this personal memory that he's making part of the show. And Elliot, like you said, he's a very private person. This doesn't come naturally to him. And yet,
0: he's openly ambivalent and conflicted about what it means. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this actually leads me into the next topic that I'd love to discuss with you guys, because upon its release, Living in the Material World didn't live up to critics' expectations, especially following All Things Must Pass. A big criticism of Living in the Material World was that it was too preachy or too spiritual at points. How do you guys think that spirituality and George's opinion on world events played a role in his music and career? Do you find that it's all too much sometimes and think that it sometimes ruins what's otherwise a great musical moment? Or do you think that it actually enhances his music, allowing the listener to become more familiar with you know, his beliefs and and closer to who he is?
1: I mean, I I said this before, I think it's where it's George's best moments in music is where he's allowed to just sing what's in his heart and sing, you know, create his spiritual visions and set it to music. I think that's uh, the best George Harrison, because even though he wrote other songs about other things, he wrote songs about Olivia, he wrote, you know, whatever it might be, he needed to write songs about what, what the things that meant something to him and that meant the most to him. So therefore I think we get some of his best music. And I think that I, in living in the material world, the fact that it was so spiritual, And I understand people at the time thinking it's a bit preachy, you know, especially because he was top dog at that point, you know, he'd had all things must pass. He was kind of winning the post Beatles, uh, you know, like game of favorites. Everyone loved George and to hear him kind of proselytizing and almost telling people off um in in that album, even though I think it's misunderstood, and that he's really telling himself those things he says it in i me mind that his um, semi autobiography that he's he's reminding himself of all those uh things in those songs uh, as well as other people and um I, yeah no i I think the world needed that you know it, I certainly wasn't alive around the time, but in the early '70s, it's Richard Nixon. It's the you know the kind of end of the Vietnam War. It's the world wasn't really in a great place, and that you know divine kind of utopia that was create that was attempting to be created in the late '60s was really kind of dying off by 1973. The world was getting more cynical. The me generation was was beginning. Uh, but George Harrison was one of the few artists that didn't forget, you know, that message. You know, even though he seemed to want to distance himself from the Beatles, he fought to preserve their greatest message: being love, give me love. Um, and I think that that, above, you know, all the other preaching, is what I take away from living in the material world: is that he was at least attempting to carry through what what he he deemed to be as the greatest thing to come out of the '60s. And that's why I will always love that record, and I will always defend those songs.
2: Yeah, I love uh, so much of George's spirituality to me comes out in the way he plays guitar on a song like Give Me Love. Honestly, also just to hear his effect on the other musicians, you know, Nicky Hopkins. We could talk all day about Nicky Hopkins and what he brought to like all the Beatles solo careers. can't imagine Imagine without him. You can't imagine Ringo without him. You certainly can't imagine Material World without him. And especially in Give Me Love, he's playing so beautifully. Klaus Foreman is playing so beautifully. And there's just something about how uplifting that song is. To me, that's George, George's spirituality coming through, the way it does in a song like Blow Away, or the way it does in a song like Pure Smokey, or the way it does in a song like Apple Scruffs. Uh, he also shows a very different sort of uh, preachy church lady side on that album, which is uh, extremely tiresome, uh, brings out like the thinness of his voice. It's weird that I was mentioning before, George always sings his great songs well and sings his bad songs beautifully. It's like his voice can hear the difference. And you can hear in some of the songs where he gets really preachy that, you know, his heart might be in it, but his voice is not in it. And that there's definitely like something you can definitely tell why the millions of people who bought this album thought, you know, like, we love this guy. We want to hear him sing something like, give me love. We want to hear him sing something like, you know, uh, uh, don't let me wait too long or be here now. These, these beautiful songs, but when he gets preachy and starts talking about sinfulness and just not even getting into the issue of his personal life and the sort of uh, the glass house that he was in and, and how it's probably better for him and better for the world that nobody really knew, like, about a lot of what was going on with George at that time, but uh, certainly it's hard to go back to that and feel for me anyway, as a listener uh, to feel much warmth for those songs, but uh, you can also feel his sort of sense of utility and overall struggle that he really, when he says, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I hope to see much clear in living the material world. He's not, he doesn't sound like he has a lot of hope and he also doesn't sound like he has a lot to say to people, uh, but he's, trying to figure it out with his music. And to me, it seems like the music is carrying him through. I mean, living the material world is, you know, such a beautiful sound. It's a groove album. It's the stripped down small band, trusted friends making music in Friar Park. And just the the warmth and communal spirit of that album, that, that to me is the real spiritual message of it. Um, and then the preachy lyrics got way out of hand to the point where, you know, and at sometime in England, he's really kind of hitting rock bottom in terms of really trying to hammer a message when he just isn't even clear what kind of message he wants to send.
0: Now, aside from spirituality, another huge influence on George's music was his friends. You know, we see some of the Monty Python cast make appearances in the music video for Crackerbox Palace, which is also directed by Eric Idle. George's song Faster was written because... He was inspired by his racing driver friends, Jackie Stewart and Nicky Lauda, And in 1988, we saw the formation of the Traveling Wilburys with George Jeff Lynne, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, and Tom Petty. Why do you think George's friends played such a big role in his music?
1: Well, I think it's clear that George, you know, and he said himself, he never wanted to be, you know, the frontman. He didn't like to be... Uh, leading a thing or whatever it might be an album a band with his name at the front he always felt uncomfortable with that George loved being in a band he loved being with friends whether that be the Monty Python guys whether that be the Dark Horse Tour group Um, he liked to be able to kind of blend into the background and just let this community of musicians and artists create something together which I think was is wonderful whereas Paul doesn't mind being at the front he very much is like, I'm Paul McCartney and you are my band. Um, you know, that's that's part of the major difference between those two artists. Whereas George didn't need that. He 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 was absolutely fine to let someone else take center stage, but by virtue of him being the Beatle, everyone else wanted it to be him. So I think any time where you look at a period in George's life where there is that group of friends, where there are where where it is just him working with with people even if it's like his car racing friends in the late 70s you know him just attending the grand prix in 1977 just literally going all around the globe and just wanting to be around guys that drive cars and like ask them about it and like where is your mind when you're when you're in that position he 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 just has an innate curiosity for other people who are really good at something and I think he just wanted to be around people who were good at those things, and learn from them, and 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 be around them. And the Wilbury guy, the Wilburys guys, are like that's that kind of final boss of a group of friends who are just there to not create anything necessarily groundbreaking or innovative, but just to get together and. Create music based on their early loves of what, how they fell into it, how they fell in love with it, and I think it's where you you really see that kind of crystallized. Whereas you know, even just a few years later, where, where when he's touring Japan, um, you notice that absence. You know, he's got Eric Clapton there, but he doesn't have that group of people that are his buddies. You know, uh, you know, I love live in Japan, but there is something kind of safe and distant about it that you feel like if he had maybe a closer group of friends working on it, it might have a bit more panache. It might have a bit more punch to it. So yeah. I think, Yeah. <laughs> Rob. that
2: That is such a beautiful way to put it. Honestly, I'm just kind of, you just kind of took my breath away. That sums up so <laughs> much of George in just a, a few lines, but that really is true. He was someone who, It's funny that while everybody else on earth was fantasizing about being one of the Beatles, everybody wanted to be one of the Beatles. George's fantasy was, his ultimate fantasy was being in the band at Woodstock, right? Like, or or joining Delaney and Bonnie, like Eric Clapton did, just being anonymous guitar guy, playing in the back with some like-minded musicians and letting somebody else up front take the heat. And because he was the Beatle, because he was so much more famous than anybody he could conceivably do that with he could never live that fantasy because you could never just stand in the back and just be part of the band. That's why I think him encountering the Traveling Wilburys is one of the most beautiful things to happen in his life. It's really just an incredibly inspiring and beautiful musical story that it was the one band that George Harrison could join and just be a guy in the band because he's in a group of peers who are A, very willing to take the spotlight and uh, B, like, very like, famous in their own rights so that, you know, George wasn't even the most famous guy in the traveling wheelberries to much of their audience. Um, and so it was really kind of a beautiful, th- it's really beautiful that that band existed just for George to be in a thing where he could just, you know, be like, you know, extra, extra guitarist in Derek and the Dominoes or extra guitarist in, in the band. And, you know, or just being in Monty Python, you think about like how much he would have, must've daydreamed about, you know, leaving music behind and just being, you know, like just, you know, the sixth or seventh or eighth Python, you know, and just, you know, having bit parts in, in their, in their movies. He he would have loved that, but instead he was so famous. He had to settle for actually financing those movies, but it's just, it's a beautiful thing that he found the Wilburys. He found what he had needed really all his life, which is a place where he can sort of be one of the band Without all the attention being focused on him, and that brought out so much of the beauty in his music, so much of the serenity in his in his music. He wasn't he didn't have to try so hard all the time. He didn't have to take the spotlight when it didn't come naturally to him. That's why I think that those songs just you know stand out so hugely, and why that whole period stands out so hugely in his career.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, if you look at the traveling Wilburys, their most famous songs they're all taking turns singing the verses or chorus, or they're all singing at the exact same time. Like, none of them are really presenting themselves as the leader, which I think shows how having like-minded people around you really produces magical music. I I mean, I might be biased because I really love every song by the Traveling Wilburys, though.
2: They hold up so well. They, they, They really, really age well. It's really funny to, like... To go back to those records and everybody loved those records in the 80s but they've really worn well because it's really you understand what a weird isolated case in history this was of a bunch of rock stars from different eras different parts of the world different musical styles but they recognize something wounded in each other and that by forming a band together you know, that they can make each other stronger and bring out each other's best it's really kind of a unique story
1: And it's from a time where a lot of music has now not aged well. Part of the reason why, um, you know, there's a lot of good songwriting on Flowers in the Dirt and a lot of good songs on Paul McCartney's Flowers in the Dirt, but there are a lot of moments on that album that sound like garbage today, Um, uh, purely from the production and the awful synth bass. And, you know, and there's a bit of that in in Cloud Nine with uh, Jeff Lynne's stamp on it, but... Um, Because the Wilburys weren't trying to innovate, they weren't trying to sound contemporary, it now has aged better than most other music from around that time, at least from an aging rocker perspective,
2: you know? Absolutely. I I don't know if any of you were, uh, you're probably both too young to have been listening to The Traveling Wilburys in the 80s, but uh, something that was really striking about that, I I was a Dylan freak, and I remember that album and listening to, you know, The Dylan songs on that record especially tweeter and the monkey man and thinking he can still do this like he can still he can still write songs like this because he hasn't done it on any of his own albums in many 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 years and it's like Dylan can still write funny brilliant Dylan songs and it's funny that that was such a freeing environment for Dylan because he didn't have to stand up and, and be, I'm Bob Dylan, I'm the, pop, I'm the prophet, I'm the spokesman of a generation, I'm the, I'm the poet, we'll be winning the Nobel Prize someday. He's just like one guy in the band and he can sing a couple songs per album. And for all of them, in their different ways, it was so inspiring. You hear how much like mutual generosity goes into that arrangement. I mean, Tom Petty was more famous in 1989, 1988 than all those guys put together in terms of the music he was making right now. And it was just really kind of beautiful that he was at this peak in his career and that he, you know, went from one group, the Heartbreakers, to this other group where other people were just so inspired by having a bigger star in the group. I, I, it's, it's hard to describe. It, it, if you had a time machine and went back to 1988, the sheer weirdness of turning on Top 40 radio and hearing this song comes out and it's George Harrison, and then you hear. Tom Petty and Bob Dylan singing the bridge. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Roy Orison starts singing. It's like, (laughs) what in God's name is happening here? It was absolutely unprecedented, unthinkable. It seemed like a novelty, but it holds up so brilliantly and so soulful because all those musicians thrived so much from not being in the spotlight.
1: And that it all happened by accident. It was, you know, it was like a Jeff Lynne, um, and Roy Orbison, Roy Orbison was singing on a song that Jeff Lynne was producing, and then they had Tom Petty who uh, needed to get his guitar as well, and then they thought they'd record it at Bob Dylan's house. Like it was all just George said it was maybe a full moon or something that w- when it happened that you couldn't plan that, you couldn't ring up all those guys and be like, hey, take time out of your schedules, uh, your touring schedules, your families and come and make an album. The The fact that it was happenstance is part of the magic um, of the Traveling Wilburys, uh, I, I think, yeah.
2: Uh, so freaky and so fluky. Like in an alternate universe, Bob Dylan is doing the dishes when like they call <laughs> to ask if yeah. they can come over to Malibu and use his place.
1: Yeah, He
2: doesn't get the call. It, none of this ever happens. And <laughs> totally. All those George songs, all those Dylan songs, they never happen because that, that serendipity doesn't happen. And like, yeah, like picking up a guitar at George's house, just completely nuts. <laughs> just the weird chain of coincidences of these people happening to be home and game for it at the same time.
0: Totally. Now, if the Traveling Wilburys had had another member join their band for the next album after Roy Orbison passed away, uh, which musician could you see possibly replacing that role?
1: You mean for, for volume three?
0: Yeah. For volume three.
1: Right. Oh man. I don't know if you could replace Roy Orbison. (laughs) I don't think anyone would have stepped up to the plate. Um, how do you step into the shoes of the greatest voice arguably in popular music? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it can be done.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'd have to think about that. You know, maybe replace isn't the right word. Uh, who could you see as just another traveling Wilbury, or someone who would fit into that band?
2: Well, some, something they could have done is had more Wilburys, like have sort of a rotating cast and yeah, it could have been, yeah. you know, like make an album every couple of years with whoever feels like doing it at that time. Um Part of me thinks it's really beautiful. Like given that it was the conceit of the fictional brothers mm-hmm. that they stopped when, you know, when there wasn't another, mm-hmm. when, you know, when Roy Everson was gone. But part of me really thinks I have to admit, I have a very specific scenario in my head where they call Ronnie Spector and
0: uh-huh.
2: Ronnie Spector <laughs> sings on volume three. Like, and, you know, she she had a history with like a few of them that, and, and to just sort of open up that band and just have, you know, she, there's a Wilberry cousin coming in, there's a Wilberry sister, there's a Wilberry brother, and, you know, eventually bringing like Wilbury nieces and nephews, you know, it could still be going on today. Um, and I love that. It's really beautiful that they stopped it when they did, but, Again, I I have this alternate universe in my head where, you know, and Ronnie Spector is like quintessential case for somebody joining the Wilburys, right? She's somebody who's like out there still trying to make her own music. The world isn't giving her enough attention. This is a place for her to, you know, be part of a creative team. Great answer.
0: Rob, in that scenario, it sounds like they could have used Paul McCartney's Let Them In as a nice theme song, you know, Sister (laughs) Susie Wilbury, Auntie Jan Wilbury. That
2: that would have been that that would have been a great way to drive George right out of the band. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, definitely wouldn't have worked out that well. <laughs> so, which era of George's life do you find to be the most fascinating for you? I originally wanted to ask this question specifically about his post-Beatles life, but let's actually open it up to include his life in the Beatles as well. You know, it could be musically, creatively, or just anything really that you're fascinated with.
1: I I think I really, I mean, I, musically, I really love the, you know, the late 70s, the 33 and a third, and George Harrison era. But personally, I think there was something truly fascinating about the final years of George's life, you know, where he knew he was going to die, and it's like this moment that he'd been preparing for, for his whole adult life is, you know, the act of leaving his body. And he knew that that was, that, that was coming. He was, he was dealing with cancer. He, someone tried to kill him, um, you know, it, and at the same time, it's the millenniums just happened. The, 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 the 21st century is at his doorstep with, you know, all these changes are about to occur um, you know, he 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 dies a couple of months after or even just like a month after 9-11. Like there's, I, I, I really wonder what George's take on the world. I guess that's brainwashed. That's kind of literally the song brainwashed. But uh, yeah, I, I I would love to know in the last years of his life, the way George thought about all this stuff, how he then thought about the Beatles, you know, without any kind of, pretense of needing to make more music or needing to get back together with the Beatles or, or whatever it might be. I just, I just think that George in his, in his later years, I think is the most fascinating in the same way that I think if he lived on today, he would have only grown more, more fascinating. And with just, uh, he would have been a wonderful person to turn to in such dark times.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like, Elliot, I mean, you really like, you opened a pretty big door into how the world would be different and how George would have adapted if he'd had, you know, many more years as he deserved and honestly, as, as we deserved. We deserve to have a lot more of George than we did. Um, I think he would have had a great 2000s musically uh, the way Paul did and the way Ringo did. You know, like George passed away in late 2001. Um, Paul comes back few years later I mean he made other albums but chaos and creation in the backyard like to me that kicks off one of the great runs that any in the the whole Beatles story Paul since chaos and creation I mean it's it's been just a mind-blowingly great 20-year time to be a Paul McCartney fan and Ringo has made so many great songs I mean obviously he's been focusing largely on his calling as a as a Band leader and as a, a live performer, but Ringo has Ringo's made most of his best solo recordings uh, in the past 15-20 years, um, and uh, if you're listening and you're haven't checked them out, I'm not necessarily saying that you know like you're missing out on like gigantic musical genius, but like a lot of fun came into it for Ringo doing it in the two thousands and in 20 teens that wasn't necessarily there for him when he was trying to do it in the eighties. And I think George would have been part of that. I think he would have sort of relaxed into his senior Statesman role the way that Paul and Ringo did. And uh, I think he would have written really sarcastic, itchy, nasty songs about the world as it was at that time. And quite frankly, I'm still always mourning that we didn't get to hear them because they would have been, really sarcastic, really bitchy, and really nasty. And they would have been, at least some of them would have been uh, just really welcome artifacts from that time. But George's life had so many fascinating periods. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and leave the Beatles behind just because that's such a like different story and feels like a, a... To me, the most interesting things about George are the things that he continued from that period. Um, his religious experience such a fascinating thing, because he converted so suddenly, and he found religion and adopted religion so suddenly, in a way that would have made, well, given all our observations of human nature, that would suggest that it would be something that would burn out kind of fast. And that that was something that became a more complex devotion as his life went on. It's such a fascinating part of, of George's life is his spirituality, his struggle to combine it with his music, mm-hmm. that he has this ferocious musical genius that he's got this intense religious devotion. And sometimes he can make them line up and they're in sync. And sometimes they clash in really discordant ways, both personally and artistically. And it's really fascinating to me that that was a lifelong thing that, that expanded for him. Um, I, yeah, I really feel like at the time that we lost George, obviously, um, you know, it's like 20, 22 years, 23 years. And I'm still like, uh, really ticked off about losing George so young but he um I feel like he had a lot more to give and I feel like he and especially I mean Olivia is such a fascinating figure in her own right but like clearly like you know every fan has to be grateful for what Olivia brought to George's life in terms of musical inspiration and personal inspiration so I I feel in many ways like uh George as an old man would have been a just a a fascinating cranky belligerent hostile (laughs) unpleasable, incorrigible and frankly impossible character that I think we really really would have had enjoyed having him around.
1: Yeah, I I often think that if uh I mean this is big a big hypothetical, but if John and uh George had lived how much John would have loved social media and Twitter um probably to a huge fault. But George would have despised it. George would have absolutely hated any kind of um, any kind of social media and 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 what it would create. Um, I mean, I don't know that for sure, obviously, but it just to me it 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 seems like the things that George stood for were antithetical to the stuff that were um, that I think John would have just latched onto. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> and instead we've got. <clears throat> Paul McCartney's social media, which is so pristine and classy and so well put together, and then we've got Ringo's, which is low-res images uh, on his Twitter page or photos of his feet. And I think, <laughs> yeah. honestly, we can be happy with that as well. That uh, it really speaks to the, the, the those two guys. And to your point, Rob, um, I think it's also, uh, speaking of George and John, how John was someone who, you know, picked up a, a, a new, um, you know, like religion or way of life, almost like a fad that he would drop and absolutely, uh, you know, blast one year later. Whereas George was someone who found something when he was in his early 20s and he maintained it until the end of his life you know, which I think is just beautiful. Like he never needed anything else. He reached the mountaintop and he was looking for what else there could be and he found it and he never let it go. And I think that's that's really wonderful. And I would have loved to see Elder Statesman George. I, I think we were denied something really wonderful there, yeah.